God never has liked bullies. He's opposed to all forms of evil, to be sure, but he seems to find the abuse of power especially insufferable. Perhaps it's the way he manages his own might, if he, the omnipotent one, can exude unceasing mercy and grace, surely you ought to be able to manage whatever tiny scrap of power you end up with in your hands. This is a story about oppression, about the oppressed, about the oppressor, and about the God who is not blind to the mistreatment of the powerless. It's a story about that God turning the tables on a nasty bully, making it clear that cruelty will not go unpunished forever. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. As the sun emerges from behind the eastern hills, the road between Gilgal and Jericho bustles with merchants and travelers, most of them headed with their figs or their furs, their sandals or their cinnamon, their tin or their copper, to Jericho. The City of Palms, everyone calls it, and Jericho does not disappoint in this regard. Its famous palm trees line the streets like sentinels their strong trunks and long arcing fronds washed in golden morning light. Certain palms are known to live for a hundred years. That's long enough for a handful of these trees to have witnessed that fateful day about a century ago when Yahweh brought down the walls and gave the city to a new people. Meanwhile, outside of Jericho, closer to Gilgal, that same golden light is broken by the long shadows cast across the road by the sacred stones, a series of sculpted limestone monuments devoted to the pagan deities of the people to the east of the Jordan, deities now, heartbreakingly, worshipped by so many formerly monotheistic Israelites. That long-standing and flagrant disobedience has made things difficult for the people of Israel. Yahweh has made sure of that. Many of the Hebrews have grown up not knowing anything other than subjugation, military and economic subservience orchestrated by God as punishment for his people's evil and faithlessness. A whole generation has grown up this way, in fact. A generation that includes our protagonist, an Israelite man named Ehud. Ever since Ehud was a boy, his Jewish countrymen have been ruled by the people to the east, the Moabites. Eighteen years ago, when Ehud was too young to fight, King Eglon of Moab marched on Jericho with his Moabite forces, aided by an axis of evil, the Ammonites and Amalekites. And the unthinkable had happened. Jericho, the city God had given Israel generations before, under Joshua, was taken back by Yahweh when he allowed Eglon to conquer it and its people. Perhaps little Ehud watched from his mother's hip 
Eglon's soldiers killing his uncle or his father or his brothers or abusing his sister and then greedily dividing the possessions of the Israelites under the shade of the palm trees that stood watch. Perhaps it was then that the seeds of Ehud's discontent were sown. Eighteen years under the hand of Eglon. At first, the conquered Israelites were heartbroken. Then, with the passing of time, their situation became normal to them. Grief faded into surrender as they grew numb to their misery. 6,570 days of prayer after prayer to the pagan gods, unanswered. And yet the Hebrews' wayward devotion, unaltered. All this time, the Hebrews have seemed to accept their fate, except for one clan in particular, the tribe of Benjamin. Their stubborn hope has been betrayed by something their tribe has been doing religiously for some time now, training their boys to be warriors. Of course, Eglon and the Moabites would never allow their subjects to train soldiers. No king wants an uprising. But apparently those rules don't stop the subversive Benjamites from doing whatever they can to prepare for whatever Yahweh might want to do should the nation turn back to him. What might Yahweh want to do? Ehud, as a Benjamite, has had plenty of time to wonder. How many times had he been ushered out far beyond the borders of the city to meet up with other boys from his tribe in some hidden spot for secret training? How many drills had he been led through by his Benjamite mentors as they passed on the storied battle techniques of their tribe? Catch this ball, throw this spear, thrust this sword, hour after hour of unceasing repetition first with the right hand, his left hand tied behind his back. And then, because they were Benjamites, and Benjamites went to battle as fully ambidextrous fighters, with the left hand, his right hand, tied behind his back. What daydreams does a boy entertain during all those hours? What hope of coming vindication at the hand of a forgotten god what thirst for future freedom had those mentor warriors instilled in the hearts of those boys as they convinced them to sneak out of bed once again to train? How many times as young Ehud had practiced did he hope, pray to Yahweh even, that it wasn't in vain, that he was preparing for a war that would one day finally come? Perhaps it will come, because these days, Ehud has noticed things are changing. There's talk of a return to Yahweh. A wave of prayers for deliverance is mounting as more and more people are crying out for the God of heaven and earth, asking him to change the tides. They don't know it yet, but Yahweh has plans to do just that. And those plans center on Ehud.
Ehud has been chosen to head up the delivery of Israel's seasonal tribute to Eglon, a fat tax levied by the king that's to be hand-delivered by his subjects. And so Ehud gathers a team of attendants and prepares the offering, packing a cart full of so many of the few valuables they possess, lifting pound after pound of his people's resources and produce, one sack with his left hand, the next with his right, the next with his left, the next with his right, and again with his left barley and wheat and almonds and dates and dried meat and olives and pomegranates, the product of months of work, fields tilled by his neighbors, irrigation ditches dug from the banks of the Jordan by his uncle, perhaps, seeds planted by his six-year-old nephew, maybe, who got to help with the work for the first time this year and was so proud to see the wheat grow tall and then bend heavy with grain. Maybe his daughter, if Ehud has a daughter, helped prune the very tree that pomegranate came from. Maybe she laughed with her father about how delicious it would be when they finally got to eat the seeds and drink its sweet, tart juice. But she won't get to. None of his people will, because every ounce of this stuff is going to Eglon, offered up as an absurd sacrifice. Surely, as he readies the tribute, Ehud rehearses the plan. History will always wonder who made the plan or how many people knew about it. Whoever was involved, though, there seems to have been a single mastermind moving the chess pieces around. The same one who'd moved Eglon into position almost two decades ago was now ready to move him out. Ehud and his attendants set out on the road to Eglon's palace in Moab, past the sacred stones near Gilgal and across the ford at the Jordan River. They stepped through the water at the same place where Joshua, all those years ago, crossed on miraculous dry ground with the Israelites, God about to give them the land he'd promised. As they journey, sweat begins to collect on Ehud's right thigh. And interestingly enough, this sweat, or the cause of it, is the reason we know Ehud's name. A length of his skin, maybe 18 inches, is smothered by a double-edged dagger, a dagger crafted by Ehud himself. Days before, he melted down tin and copper, pouring them together into the clay mold he'd fashioned, drops of his sweat falling from his forehead and sizzling as they hit the fresh bronze. He was proud of his work, despite realizing after the metal cooled that he'd forgotten to mold a cross card the part that runs perpendicular to the blade to ensure that it only travels so far into a target. No matter, anyway, less metal means less to hide, and elegant concealment will be the name of the game in the moments to come. When Ehud and his attendants arrive at the palace, they glance around with the understandable curiosity of those who haven't spent much time inside of palaces. There's a lot to take in, 
and the strange pagan culture of the Moabites is on full display. Ehud, though, seems especially interested in the architecture. So much space built on the backs of his people, so many corridors and doorways. Why? Where do they even lead? They're ushered along with the sizable tribute into the receiving hall, at the end of which, atop a flight of stairs, sits the enormous figure of King Eglon. Ehud has heard about the king's obesity. Everyone in Israel has. His name means cow, for heaven's sake. But the vastness of Eglon's belly and calves and neck, well, seeing it in person is something else. It's like Eglon has taken not just Israel's meat and produce, but all of her freedom, her hopes and her dreams, and consumed them. Ehud presents the tribute and bows, while Eglon smiles at his latest prize. What a sweet moment this is, every season when the pathetic Israelites carry their precious goods into his palace, when he gets to see their faces and be reminded that he conquered the once mighty Hebrews. Eglon takes a quick visual inventory, his whistling, labored breath audible in the stillness of the hall, his attendants craning their neck like vultures wondering what they might get to enjoy from the offering. Meanwhile, Ehud seems distracted. You'd think he'd be intently focused on this enemy king or the harvest he'll be leaving behind in a moment, but he's glancing around the hall, his sharp eyes darting from one feature to another. Is he counting? And just like that, it's over. Dismissed, Ehud and his countrymen leave the palace and journey home. Strangely, it's now that Ehud's pulse begins to quicken. And as the other attendants travel with him, do they know there's more planned? Are they confused as to why something else didn't happen while they were at the palace? Do they wonder if Ehud lost his nerve? Or is this... And what's about to happen, part of Ehud's plan, an effort to take the king off guard and provide Ehud's countrymen with plausible deniability. Or is it something else? Whatever the answer, here's what happens next. Ehud gets as far as the sacred stones on the outskirts of Gilgal, and he turns around, sends his men on home, and heads back toward Eglon's palace, alone. When he arrives, Ehud heads straight for the receiving hall. The king's guards check him, of course, for weapons, just as they did before, following their training and searching for anything that might be concealed on a person's left thigh for quick access with the right hand. Ehud, of course, has nothing on his left thigh. Your Majesty, he calls to the rotund Eglon, I have a secret message for you. Technically, the Hebrew word he uses for message could also mean object or experience. But why would he say that? 
a message. The king is excited. Perhaps it's a bit of military intelligence, perhaps a word of good fortune from the Israelites' strange sleeping god. Yehud may mention that he's just come from the sacred stones, a place Eglon would immediately connect with an oracle. Leave us, he bellows at his attendants. Once they're alone, Ehud climbs the stairs to the king's throne room. He walks closer, closer, his voice low and certain. I have a message from God for you. Eglon now heaves his great frame out of his throne, sweating with the effort, lifting himself to stand so that he can lean in and listen. That's when Ehud reaches in an instant with his left hand to his right thigh and draws back to plunge the blade into Eglon's bulbous stomach. Every drill, every training exercise, every repetitive move culminating now in finely tuned muscle memory. Ehud drives his weapon with so much force that the blade slides into the king's well-stretched flesh further, further. There's no cross guard at the hilt to stop it. And so as Ehud withdraws his hand, he finds himself pulling his fingers not only away from Eglon's body, but out of it, leaving the dagger inside, the fat folding back into place as if trying in vain to close the wound. Of course, there is no closing it. The blade has ruptured Eglon's intestines, and they and all of their contents spill wildly from the breach. The king of Moab, oppressor of Israel, falls to the ground, writhing as the chewed remnants of Israelite produce ooze slowly from his belly. The miasma of feces fills the air as Eglon, the fat bull, lies slain, his blood pooling on the floor, spattered across his throne the way the Jewish priests would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the altar. What does it feel like to kill a man while making eye contact with him? To come face to face with the price, the finality, the mystery of death? Whatever emotions are swirling around inside of him, Ehud has no time to contemplate them. He must now turn his attention to getting out and buying some time. And this, perhaps, is where we learn the reason Ehud didn't kill Eglon on his first visit. While taking note of the layout of the palace earlier, Ehud must have noticed one key feature of the king's private chamber. Not the throne. Well, not that throne. The toilet. Apparently, Eglon could not be bothered to descend the stairs when nature called, and had a toilet installed for himself right up there in his throne room. Without plumbing, of course, a toilet is just a hole above a pit. A pit that in this case must, according to Ehud's calculations, connect to a tucked away part of the receiving hall by way of one of those many doors. Now, generations will tell this story again and again, but if the exact route of Ehud's escape is part of the telling early on, somehow it's eventually lost to history. But perhaps it went something like this. 
Ehud closes and locks the doors, separating the throne room from the stairs, steps across Eglon's carcass, and peers down into the toilet, a sizable opening built for a sizable monarch. The smell might overpower him if not for the stench of the disemboweled corpse at his feet. Instead, it's just more of the same. Just eight or ten feet down, he can see the reservoir. But off to the side, he can see cracks of light seeping in from the edges of a doorway. That must be where they get in to empty the waste. Ehud holds his breath and climbs down into the toilet, hangs onto the edge, swings his body ever so slightly, and drops, landing just beside the container of Eglon's manure. He opens the door, slides out, and closes it behind him. However he makes it out, he then walks swiftly to the porch outside and makes his way nonchalantly past the guards and attendants waiting there at the king's command. Meanwhile, those attendants wait for the king to call them back into the receiving hall and wait and wait and finally venture into the hall and up the stairs toward the throne room. Finding the doors locked, they're immediately struck by the foul smell of excrement. They conclude that the king is relieving himself and wait until he's finished, but he doesn't finish. And they wait and wait, and finally, despite their embarrassment, they fetch the key and let themselves in, only to find their Lord fallen to the floor in a puddle of blood and feces. During all of this, of course, Ehud has long since made his escape. Once he reaches home, Ehud will blow a ram's horn to summon Israel's fighters who will stream down from the hill country, rallied as Ehud cries, Follow me, for Yahweh has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. The Israelites will take possession of the river crossings and, under their new commander, will rout the Moabite forces and enjoy peace for 80 years. But Ehud hasn't reached home yet. First, he must wade through the Jordan and wash his hands of their bloodstains. He stands in the water, crimson curling away from his skin in wisps, then disappearing, washed away in the river. In almost the same place, many years from now, Yahweh will look on with joy as Jesus of Nazareth is baptized, inaugurating his campaign to secure the forever freedom of Israelites and Moabites and Iraqis and Afghans and Americans. The whole world delivered from subjugation to the powers of sin and death. No more tributes to all-consuming tyrants No more oppression. No more bullies. Ehud walks on, his toes and fingers dripping with the muddy water of the Jordan, the sun now resting in the west, the road to Jericho golden, unbroken by the shadows of the sacred stones.
Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to share this podcast with a friend, I'd love for you to do that. I'd also be thrilled if you'd leave a quick review. I'm all alone in this room, so tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. A new episode of Holy Ghost Stories drops every other Monday. Subscribe so you don't miss any of them. In the meantime, you can find out more, including why I created this podcast and what I'm hoping to accomplish with it at holyghoststories.org. Till next time.